Ross Demont, and you're listening to the New Zealand Wine Podcast. Thanks for joining us for this episode where we're on site at the Gibson Valley Winery in Central Otago of New Zealand, speaking with the head winemaker there, Christopher Keyes. Uh, Christopher's been at Gibson for some time now, but we have a chat with him about how he got to be doing what he's doing right now. So yeah, let's go and have a chat with Christopher. So here we are on location at uh, Gibston Valley, and uh, nice to have you with us, Chris, Christopher. Do you go yeah. by Christopher or Chris? Um, well, I don't mind, Yeah. Uh, but uh, close friends call me Christopher B-Dog, so <laughs> okay. you, can call, you can call me, <laughs> no, um, you can call me Christopher um, for sure. Very good, and it's, a, um, it's quite a lovely sort of, what are we, late winter's day here in, um, in the valley? Yeah, yep. yep. It's um, disturbingly warm as it's been the whole winter. Right. Yes. Yeah. So we're in um, 2019 for anyone who happens to listen to this sort of at a, at a later date. Um, but that's what's going on. That's what's going on this year. So where did your journey start, Christopher? Um, well, uh, in, in what regard? In, into Let me your ask you a question. Into, yeah. <laughs> 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 right back at me. Um, in, in regards to wine, like when yeah. so did you had you always sort of wanted to be in wine, or did you come to wine from something else? Or well, I, I, I like the way wine brings people in from all sorts of different backgrounds, and um, I'm certainly from a different background. And our family had always consumed wine, so wine was part of our. Uh, I, I guess we're like to summarise my upbringing as. Um, uh, there was a lot of sitting around the table communicating. As a, as a family, we really sort of sat there dumbly watching TV. We actually were one of those families that had an evening meal and dad would have, mum and dad actually, increasingly mum, I should say, would um, consume wine throughout the meal. <laughs> right. In fact, that's quite a point of contention who was getting more wine poured for them um, <laughs> as families tend to squabble over. But um, yeah, so... I remember um, Dad took us to also Mum and Dad when we were in Australia. I, I was there from the years of zero to six. We got dragged out to um, Dad's favourite wineries, and Chateau de Bilk was one of those. Uh, there's another one called um, uh, Os- Oscar or something like that. And um, so we're about to in, in Australia, aren't we? In, in Victoria. In Victoria. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I still remember the um, Osakas. Yeah, I still remember the smell of the cellar and the um, fear of the snake holes in the ground. You always remember oh. things you're scared of when yeah. you're a child, and <laughs> I remember that. A very evocative um, memory. So that's kind of where the seed was planted, I guess. And we always had, as I said, um, food and wine chat over dinner, and Mum and Dad would let us smell and try and appreciate the wine. Um, I still remember saying, this smells like floorboard. And Dad was saying, yes, that's the oak, um, to a, to a wine and, and learning how to say Gewürztraminer from an early age. And, um, but then, I mean, it, so it was kind of a subtle backdrop to my early life. No, no, it's not like my, my son now who, who looks at every single ferment, knows how to turn the press on. Um, it was, it was more a subtle backdrop. And then, at um, at uni, I was doing 
a um, a very wayward career involving most things. I was badly qualified in everything I used to think. So I did a med intermediate, which, um, you know, to become a doctor. I don't really want to become a doctor. Uh, so I, I did some chemistry. I, I then went to legal systems and um, did some law. But what, what carried on going was uh, the, the thing that I passed was Russian history, literature, and English lit. And so I ended up getting a BA in English lit and Russian language. Wow. Yeah, obscure, nothing to do with wine. In some ways, in other ways, yes. But um, as I was studying in Dunedin, I uh, happened across um, 334 George Street, Munslow's Fine Wines, popped in there, and some very important people in my life, um, Peter um, and Laurie Munslow, um, were setting up store there. uh, And I just mentioned that I'd like a job, and... They said, we'll take your number. And of course, that was in the mid nineties. We didn't have cell phones then. And, 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 uh, so they rang me on my landline. And I still remember this because I was living out in Coney Hill Road, St. Clair, right? Beautiful view over the beach in Dunedin, South Dunedin. And I was missing a lecture, which was not unusual, but, um, yeah, quite common. But the phone rang, and it was Peter's. He said, "Do you want to come in? We need to, uh, the back stacked up and some deliveries done." And I always think, were I a better student, had I gone to that lecture, what would have happened with my career? Because that was a real kickstart to my interest in wine. Where I where I then started working with some fabulous people who are generous enough to show me the culture of wine. I got to attend tastings with um, with the whole Munslow's uh, culture and um, a lot of winemakers come in. I remember John Forrest doing tastings then and, and talking about how the Forrest 1994 Sauvignon Blanc was the product of multiple picking dates. And I was fascinated by that, to think of how the complexity of a wine could be created by a different picking dates, something I never understood and stuff like that. Yeah, right. So it, so it reignited something for you that was probably lurking around. Yeah. Yeah, yeah very much so. Yeah. Um, and there was a, not to be discounted in all of this, there was a sense of desperation that I had no um, career path at all. <laughs> um, so I uh, went to Lincoln Needs and then… Must. <laughs> yeah, for following um, following graduation at Otago, um, I then went to Lincoln and um, did the post grad diploma in viticulture and knology, and then got onto it that way. Right. Okay. So that was that was, that was pretty straight after you finished in, in Otago, or did you have a bit of break? No, just went to straight across and did that. Well, by that stage, I was forty two. So no, it was <laughs> like I was so old. Um, so I was in my late twenties. Happily, most of, this is 1997, so I was 26. Um, so happily, to give you an idea of what student I, what sort of student I was, I graduated officially, I think, in 2005, which is when I got my uh, form. I filled my forms. I passed all my exams just fine, but didn't get around to sending all my forms. And so it probably says on my academic record that I graduated in 05, but actually I did the year in 97. Uh, with a lot of um, people of similar age. So uh, it brought together um, this post-grad class, a lot of people in their late 20s um, from lots of different backgrounds. um, There were a couple who were into commercial like banking, um, a couple who had had experience in the wine industry, um, Rod McDonald, um, who'd been working at Vital. He was kind of our hero because he was the assistant winemaker at Vital at the time. 
and uh, Andy Smith, who'd come in from a lot of, um, he, he's now at DeMole in California, and he'd been working a lot, and, um, and people of my own age, uh, and that was great, because it felt like I, I was in amongst uh, a very cohesive band of people who are all the same age, learning the same sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think that's part of the the youth of New Zealand's wine industry is that we do have a lot of people who've come to it from something else. You know, we are getting people, you know, younger people who are coming through it from the very beginning. It's what they want to do when they leave school and go and study and that's their whole career path. But I think initially there were a whole lot of people who were doing law or something else and didn't quite enjoy it and had always had something to do with wine lurking around and, and made the move across you know, either just into working in or wine or buying a, some land or. Hmm. That's a fascinating thing about wine. It takes all sorts of people and it takes in all sorts of different approaches to it. And I remember one of our lecturers, I can't even remember his name, uh, he was very uh, scientifically focused. And, you know, that's one approach. You get your, um, your people who are obsessed with chemistry of wine, for example. Uh, but also it takes in all sorts of, like locally I know, like politicians, ex-politicians, it's lawyers, it's doctors, um, or people with an artistic background. And everyone has a, a different in, and um, the, the industry has scope to allow their interests or their professions, accountants for example, um, they have they have the use, believe it or not, they do, and and all every and business people, um, and there's a different take on the wine world, and we all have to exist within this because um, without the people, I, I, I think about um, my, I, I, I hesitate to say skills, but my approach is very narrative based. So I like to establish causality, or I like to see threads or links. Sometimes I don't see them, but I, I love to. Uh, I love people who do that. Who's like Rudy Bauer from Quartz Reef has a very, um, almost a poetic sense of progress, where things are going, where we started, how things are changing, developing, and I love that. And that's what I'm drawn to too: the ability to um, look at uh, events and try and piece together the interconnecting um, bits that make sense of the whole thing. That's what I'm, and that could be anthropological. It could be looking at how humans relate to each other, um, or um, it could, if ne- necessary, be a financial uh, analysis on the productivity of making twenty-two dollar Central Otago Pinot. Providing there is a cause and effect or a reason for doing things, mm. I'm extremely interested. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And I think it, that's a nice thing about the wine industry. It takes all that what I'm interested in might be terrible for a, a more a, a, like a detail focused person. Yeah, 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 for sure. Okay, and so you had um, you had quite a good group of you then then doing the um, course along with. Yeah, so that's over you know, like 22 years ago, and um, Nadine Cross from Peregrine's a very good friend. She was in the same class, right. um, and, and Michael Davies, who's winemaking over in California um, for Rex Hill, uh, he's in the same class. So interesting. I think uh, of of about the 30 people, I I've sort of kept tabs in five or six, and I don't know where the rest have gone. They might have gone back to commercial banking if they were sensible. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so we finished there, and then um, yeah, uh, it was the a lot of us had um, undergrad degrees, and I even had a postgrad. 
So there was no way I was looking for another undergraduate degree. So um, so the Lincoln uh, Uni um, postgrad diploma, the one-year course, was really good because you could do it, hammer away. It was pretty intellectually focused, left you... Um, blitheringly um, woeful and nervous uh, from a technical or practical point of view. Once you're out, um, you had to learn how to use a pump, but you actually knew the, the science or the reasoning behind right. a lot of what you did. Yeah, Not all. Uh, you can't learn everything in a year or 20 years or a lifetime, but That's it certainly true. gave you a, a, a firmer um, modular base of based on like um, yeah. at the intellectual side rather than the practical side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Okay. And so w- what came um, next for you after after moving on from there? So I went back to Hawke's Bay. So I'd, I'd, I'd completed my Otago degree and Lincoln degree, so yeah. a lot of life in the South Island, and then went up back up to where I'd grown up um, and uh, went to school. So I'd spent most of my time in Hawke's Bay. So went back, um, bunked down with mum, dad, and um, worked for Havelock North Wines and Spirits with Richard Gregory, um, and then moved on out, and uh, I was doing sort of like uh, popping up here and there at uh, Brookfields uh, for Peter Robertson, and he was very kind. He could probably see that I was actually, by my very attendance and awkward presence, asking for a vintage job, but I was just too nervous to ask, and he offered one to me. And so I started uh, in 1998, a seminal vintage in Hawke's Bay. It was just classic vintage. And uh, yeah, I um, I got I started working there as a seller hand, and the the wines that year were incredibly intense. I remember them coming out of the fermenter black, just like road tar black, and tasting them and thinking, "God, this is awful." This shows my inexperience. And Peter would be doing cartwheels of happiness at how yes <laughs> because they were so well uh, they were so deeply colored and flavored and i was thinking it because my experience had been based on trying finished wines and th- that was a tremendous uh, looking back of course um period of learning for me four years working for one of new zealand's iconic winemakers and peter was kind enough to give me um uh scope to evolve in many many different areas so i could so we had to do everything from the vineyard so from the pruning tractor driving to um winemaking and he after a while i became assistant winemaker um living in his pocket and doing uh you know learning how to make wine learning the the importance of the looking after the product he had a really strong sense of um value for the product which is uh, aka don't screw this up, uh, which is fair enough. This is his, um, so he didn't like anything wasted, anything like you know, a tight uh, grip on wine quality. And beyond that, and a really important part was uh, filling in time in the cellar door and then doing wine waitering as well. So I got everything from and and sort of sales trip here and, and there as well, and some really. Really odd jobs on top of that, like moving horses around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was that's terrible, great, that. isn't it? The whole breadth of, yeah, you know, for one of your sort of early roles to get that whole breadth of right through from everything from the plant right through to how people, what people's feedback on the finished product. Exactly right. Cool. I was extremely lucky and working with some interesting people there at Brookfields along the way. And uh, a lot of, the, so one, one of my jobs was to, 
clean up cow pat of the um, oh, it was horse shit actually, yeah, horse shit out the back of um, one of the vineyards where Peter Peter loves horses, rides horses, and um, I, I was working with a guy who who had, I, I mean, he was he was he was not gang affiliated, but he knew what was going on in gangs. So I would hear things from him a a day before they appeared in the newspaper. Oh, right. So it gave me a really a really good social education one and we had great events at Brookfields. The restaurant was going full on. Um and we had lots of music bands coming in and stuff like that. So it was a it was a cool education. And Peter let me travel and took me under his wing really and I owe him a lot. What and what varietals were you working with? Do you, can you recall? Yeah, I can. Cab yeah. Sav. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, Cab Sav, uh, Chardonnay. Um, oh, sorry, just the reds. Cab Sav, Cab Franc, um, Merlot, uh, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc. Um, yeah, we also had a, a thing called Early Musket, um, Pinot Gris and Riesling. So he, he did, he did, arom- uh, like Alsatian aromatics. Um, and for one or two years, he, he actually had Pinot in as a side project with a fellow business partner and that was my first exposure to Pinot and he said uh, Christopher you've got to go and learn how to make Pinot so um, he sent he allowed me to do a vintage overseas uh, I'm not sure if he actually said those words but I'm, I'm going to make it up that he did I'm pretty sure he did um, <laughs> but he, he wanted me to obviously increase my education and I through CAEP um, the exchange program got a vintage over in the USA and I applied for California and ended up with a place called, as I read it, Oregon. Okay, I don't want to work in Oregon. I want to work in California. I didn't even know where Oregon was. Anyway, so it's Oregon, as I found out. And I got a job. Um, coincidentally enough, it's quite similar to where I work now, but at Adelsheim in, um, in the Willamette Valley. And that was an incredible experience for me because I got it. That was my real first trip overseas, whereas most people are still overseas doing the OE. I'd spent too long reading about Dostoevsky and <laughs> life's miseries and not really got overseas. So that was the first time I'd got overseas and worked in um, Adelsheim and got exposed to top class Pinot. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so did you, was it similar to Central Otago and sort of – Climate and location, or no? Well, I back then I it was different from anything I'd ever seen, mm-hmm. and that was hammered home to me the first day that I'd arrived, and I got picked up by this um, Mexican guy in a convertible. Oh, he's a Hungarian. I'm sorry, Hungarian guy. In a con- he he was doing the same course, and he picked me up, and he was in a convertible Mustang, and we were cruising over one of the five or ten bridges in Portland over the river, and I was. Oh, this is cool. And all these massive Kenworths were cruising past and we're open top. And I was going, Oh, this is cool. I was getting more and more excited. And then three F-15s just screamed over us. And I was, that was my first America fuck you moment. I was like, wow, this is so cool. And, but it surprised me because the Americans were, um, the Portland, Portland and Oregon people are incredibly generous and wonderful, warm types. I'd never seen anything like the it, anything like the landscape there. It's a different landscape from here, different influences. But I think the setup of Adelsheim is quite similar. Um, David Adelsheim was one of the pioneers of um, of Oregon, and 
here, Alan Brady, the kind of look similar, and I think their visionary approach is, is similar. I see parallels there, and how lucky I've been to work at two um, pioneer wineries of, and, of respective and, areas. And how, how well established was Oregon as a region back then? Was it sort of quite? It had been going for quite some time, and yeah, yeah, yeah. still living in the shadow of California, okay. and I think it's come on in right. leaps and bounds yeah. uh, since. Yeah. Um, so it was still an informative year. So we're talking uh, 1999 when I was there. But uh, definitely there, um, I mean, there were new places like Domain Serene had come in, uh, Duran had um, established there. So there were some big players who understood how good the place was. As well, you had the, uh, the people who had been around a while. And, uh, yeah, making some incredible wine. So I think they, they all knew how good it was. The, their point, I think, back then was they weren't sure that, say, Wine Spectator, for example, knew how good it was, and they felt um, perhaps back then it hadn't quite established itself in the um, in the realm of in the the rhetoric of, of the world's top Pinot. Right. Back then, just on based on how Americans viewed things. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, 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 really young then, like, um, like a lot of New Zealand then, as a region. Correct. Yeah. 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 Pr- pretty much set up. Um, I think it was late sixties. Um, David Lett. Um, and Dickie Rath and and um David Adelsheim in seventies. So pretty similar in some ways, and and here, uh, to New Zealand, and and here in um in central the uh, late seventies, early eighties for Rolf Mills and um Alan Brady and um. Uh, Vernon Burgess and um, yeah, and mm. the uh, Anne Pinkney and all the other pioneers oh, around yes. here, yeah. similarish, maybe ten years on. Right. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And and so, how how many vintages did you do there? Did so I did one at Adelsheim. Yeah. So yeah, and then returned to Oregon in '03 and '05. So oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yep. worked in Rex Hill, um, which uh, was another fantastic winery to work in, and. In 05, um, Rob Stewart, Rob Stewart, R. Stewart and Co. and McMinnville. So. And still focused on the, on learning about the yeah, Pinot Noir? Yeah, very much yeah. so. So yeah. I'd finished at Brookfields in 02, um, and went right. off to Cellini and got involved with their Pinot production there, um, from 02 to 06. And during that time, um, in three and five, I'd gone over to the States and, Really important vintage for me was that 03 one in, in Rex Hill and working with an incredible team of people. Uh, and Aaron Hess was the winemaker. The late Aaron Hess, sadly, um, sadly deceased, but he was a tremendous influence on me. Um, and yeah, just like anyone, that's not, that's not great news. I like not new news that you get influenced by people who you work with, but. It's it's one of the great things about the vocation, the capacity to travel and learn and just soak up. And I think I was old enough then to understand what I have at Adelsheim. I was probably thinking, why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? They shouldn't do this. Whereas by the time I'm um, at Rexel, I'm thinking, wow, this is cool, and, and trying to understand. It's a l- lifelong um, exercise and um First of all, um, realizing, I, I don't know, your, your, your approach changes over time where, where you realize that the, um, the definable truths that you hold so dear when you're young actually erode into 
things a deeper richer understanding of of the not only the making but the ethos and culture that goes behind it i think that's the thing that that develops with time yes and um, that's a very slow development in some like me and um and probably faster than others but i i look back and i think those those are the types of for example i was just thinking like um how aaron when he when we had a daily meeting uh before vintage every day and so what I liked about Aaron is that he viewed everyone as equally important and was quick to to um, give praise out to those members of his staff who he valued, and he valued everyone. And I liked that. It didn't matter where you came from. He would um, acknowledge. Um, so so winemaking can be hierarchical when you're young, you view, like if you're a sailor hand, you want to be an assistant winemaker. If you're an assistant winemaker, you want to be a winemaker. For him, he was thanking everyone on the sorting table. This is before harvest. Um, the, for the, from the Mexican guy to the um, Kiwi guy to everyone and making sure that you felt part of a, a valued part of a team. Right. Now, yeah, I look back on that and I think, actually, that's one of the best things you can learn out of during harvest yes yeah well and you say you know it takes a few years to appreciate that it's, you need the years to compare things to don't you because you need the experiences to compare things to and go oh, okay this was actually quite unique i don't you mm. know you don't see that everywhere all the time no and i think that it's interesting when you the analogy to a sports person for example as they get older they they definitely their skills increase but they're probably they're probably aware of of more of life's vicissitudes, the good and bad things that can happen, and so it's a double edged sword. Uh, with youth, you can see the exuberance and say, "Yeah, you can do it. You can you can do everything," because you haven't experienced failure or disappointment. As you get older, you get more aware of the the rhythms of life and the meanings of why things are the way they are. But part of that is tinged with a less a slightly less um, I can do anything type attitude, which is probably a better attitude to get to mm. and mm. more of a humane attitude. Yeah. But it's yeah. based on the fact that you've seen um, things both worthy, noble, and poor and failure. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so were you tempted then to hang around there or stick on there or yeah so um actually i was and uh, her name was elizabeth (laughs) 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 so yeah i I met my um, first wife over there and and uh, actually i was very close to working with aaron again in a different project but um as it happened i came back to we came back to new zealand um fatefully uh and i carried on working at selini and then in 2006, we're going to head off to California or Central Otago, depending on whether I got the job at Gibson Valley or not. And as it happened, oh. I did. So right. here we are. Yeah. Or here I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, one of those two things worked out. Yeah. <laughs> so, so back to Selene for a bit, and then and and down here. And did you did you like you you, you had California as an option and here was it because you wanted to pursue Pinot specifically yeah yes right. 100% yeah. and um, I'd just been any, anyone who lived in New Zealand um, and had been to Central Otago 
uh, just viscerally or, uh, you know, you're incredibly impressed by the place and the wines. And it had been hard work making Pinot Noir in Cellini. Um, yeah. Because Hawke's Bay um, was uh, strugg- like, I guess struggling to prove itself. So uh, particularly because especially the mentality I had at the time, I, I probably went to at winemaking, reverse engineered it, if you like. So I had a product and uh, had a wine in mind and tried to make that wine from Hawke's Bay fruit. These days, I, I, of course, I wouldn't look at it at all like that. Um, but that's the way you are when you're younger and trying to impress everyone in the wine world and impress uh, your peers and, and people with you. You want to get more colour, you want to get more intensity, you want to construct a wine. And that's kind of what I was doing. And I felt that in Otago, so many of those things happened naturally. It didn't seem like you had to work quite as hard. So Cellini was useful for me from an enological point of view. However misguided that might be, because I could look at um, cause and effect in uh, things uh, for example, pH control and see what that had on colour because the pinots were so much more fragile and delicate. So if one went out of line, well, the whole thing went out of line. Um, so uh, I came down here with a, an understanding of how you could enhance a construction of a pinot. And I'd won a gold medal for uh, Selene Estates 2005 uh, exceptional vintage Pinot Noir in a Japanese competition, and the um, the the uh, owner of uh, of Gibson Valley at the time, one of the owners, um, on the back of that, thought I was worthy of an interview. Um, to to and his point was, well, if you can do that with Hawks Bay, you sh- you should be able to do okay here. And I knew once I had an interview, at least I could have a look. And they could have a look at me and we'll see how it went. And um went okay. Um I I loved what I saw. We we drove around um the vineyards and I I just was floored by them. Incredible sights. So yeah. So I looked out there and went, Oh my god, this is two thousand six and we'd had a pretty tough vintage in um in uh Hawke's Bay that year. I remember sort of standing outside looking at the rainfall and um, Grant Edmonds, who was my boss at Selene, and another fantastic influence on me, and him just sort of saying, you know, uh, you know, making those decisions that I'd then have to make later on in my life. And I could see him sort of like, do we pick, do we not? And I'm going in my mind, like, I was, I was sure about things. Like, yeah, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. And, uh, and, um, and I could see kind of like how pragmatism was taking over a vintage 2006. Um, you know, it, it, you start a vintage thinking, right, we'll pick it when everything's ripe. But in some vintages in Hawke's Bay, if the rain came from the east three days at least, or three weeks it felt like. And so you stop picking at the right time, you just picked when you could. And that was one of those vintages where I, I could learn, watch, and see what he was decision makings. I, I, I now... Look, oftentimes actually looked at Grant and thought, shit, those decisions that you were making are a lot harder when you've got to make them rather than observe someone making them. So I, I got from quite a wet, shitty vintage in Hawke's Bay, came down here, looked at the pristine fruit that was still on the vines in Otago. I thought, God, this is God's country for vineyards. There's spectacular views in these mountain terraces out in Bendigo and this wonderful clean fruit bursting with flavor. 
And I thought, shit, I've got to work here. This is incredible. And then we drove back to Gibson Valley Winery and I pulled up here and I thought after Selene, um, where the fuck is the roof? Uh, all the fermenters were outside. We had, um, yeah, it was like after it was quite a, quite a juxtaposition. The vineyards were incredible. The winery wasn't. And Selene was an incredible winery. The vineyards are good, but the ones here are amazing. And I just thought, oh, well, actually, that was what propelled me to want to work here, just the quality of the fruit. Right. Yeah. Okay. And that's 13, 13 years ago? Then? Yeah. So yeah. 2006 started then. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, third, third wine maker here. So Grant Taylor preceded me, and he'd yes. been, he is an illustrious winemaker, and he was instrumental in so many victories for both Gibson Valley Central Otago. So, I spent my first year um, hearing from people, well, you've got big boots to fill. <laughs> I heard it all the time. I used to, in the end, have my head down at the supermarket because I was afraid of bumping into someone else who's going to tell me exactly the same bloody thing. So, yeah, but it's, uh, it was a real honor to, obviously, yeah. and it, probably a shock to a lot of people down here. I can see yeah. that now. Well, I think you've obviously filled them, filled them well. <laughs> filled them with something. Yeah. <laughs> And so would you, just thinking on the different regions then, would, you know, and, and, and obviously you still have, you know, good years and tougher years, but is, is Central Otago quite consistent, do you think, for being able to produce good wine at least year after year, even though some years, you know, you might get it better, rather than, whereas some regions are harder, harder to actually get a good, get that consistency sort of over you know over 13 years how would you say it's been like you, you know quite a consistent quite consistent region yeah 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 i would say uh, i would answer that question um i, I give us considered answer to that mm. good question boris um i after 10 years i would have said we've got it so easy here the only variations we have are in yield and that's a little bit of cold around flowering and maybe a little bit of frost here and there, but essentially we're going to get concentrated wine. Um, and the, we're quite a uh, benevolent climate in many regards. And, and usually that's based on autumn being um, quite moderate, nice and warm, dry, and the semi-arid conditions here mean d- disease pressure is low. So I, I used to always think it's it had less variation than what I do now and I, I, I say that because we've we're just on the back of 2017 and 2018 and those were two radically different vintages one um, was cool and wet and um, the the words of Nick Cave seem to come in there it's small and it's mean and it's cold <laughs> um, whereas the 18 was like watching a large tsunami of that you were standing underneath and you could, you're powerless to do anything. That was early. We were picking a month earlier. So we, um, we, we didn't pick anything at all in April, which even now seems staggering. We'd finished in March 31st, record heat. Uh, we'd had higher GDDs than anywhere around the country, Gisborne and Waikiki, Auckland, um, combined. So, um, and it was only, um, the, the, the drought and the heat being broken by, some rain and cool at the start of February that kind of turned the vintage around. But so they were radically different uh, vintages that expressed themselves uh, very, very differently in the wines. And I think that the Pinot Pinot will always express differences in ways that become clear with time. And maybe the um, vacillations of vintage are a little bit more subtle in central overall amongst a 
uh, a pretty decent climate. For example, in some of these years with the tropical, tropical cyclones burning down on, um, boring down in New Zealand, there were, I think it was 2017, we um, just got the tail end of one. And so we're extremely lucky. We don't tend to get the same rain from the east or tropical cyclone. So yes, but no. Yes and no. Yeah, no, uh, sure. There's more variation than I thought originally. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Mm. And um, anything sort of coming up on the uh, horizon for you? I mean, so what varietals are you working with right, right now? Yeah, so um, we're... We've got, we make about 20 to 26 different wines. Wow. So it's a lot of, mm. of different wines. And, um, so Gibson Valley isn't actually that big a winery. It's, it's only, uh, 50, 60 hectares. Um, but, but, uh, we make a lot of wine from a lot of different single vineyards from, uh, so giving expression as so many people do here to, to our land and our place and the different, uh, expressions of Pinot. So, um, loads of different Pinots. Love those. Um, some from Bendigo and some from Gibston. Uh, and we've also kicked off a method program back in 2010. So we have sparkling, which has been tremendously exciting. And as you've non- no doubt heard, um, Chardonnay down here is, is really cool. Uh, really love that. And we also do a Pinot Blanc, which is called Riesling and Pinot Gris. So mm. there's fairly decent breadth um, across those. And within that, there's plenty of room for experimentation of style and um, and expression of place. So I don't know that we'd, yeah, I don't know. I, we, we, I think we, I mean, we don't do, for example, we haven't kicked off any um, natural wines or, oh, this is such a stupid term that, but any any wines that are of that elk or orange mm. wines and stuff like that. Um, but... We, because when I, when I say it's a stupid term, the wine we're drinking, well, we've got in front of us is in all things, like it's dry farmed organic vineyard, 35 year old vines. It's had minimal intervention and has a total sulfur of about 40 parts, which is so close to natural yet. I don't know. It just seems mm. a stupid, mm-hmm. um, stupid term for what is a very, like the overall ethos behind the wine, I guess, is more important now and behind wine production and what you're trying to do as a, as a winery and an area. That's the, those are the things that interest me yeah. more yeah. compellingly as I get older. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. And so maybe outside of Gibston, anything else you're seeing that's piqued your interest, anyone else is doing or you're seeing a trend into particular type of planting or um, anything else you've um, thing going on or? around here, yeah, um, yeah. Well, just in the in the whole in, in the broader region, you know, Bendigo Way or yeah, yeah. Well, I, I always look. I I was like, I was like courageous, um, philo- philosophical wine producers, and so if I see that, um, I'm I'm drawn to that. It might be a method of production, and in that camp, I would put. Um, I, I really like, for example, our neighbours, Chard Farm. If you, as we did, lined up for the MWs, a whole bunch of 2017s to look at uh, style differences uh, as an industry body, we have these cool events. Chard Farm stood out for how light it was. And I love that. I love how delicate and precise and long it was because it's easy to assume Central Otago has an identity and it doesn't. It has millions of heterogeneous different 
um, shades and reflections. And mm. here was someone who, uh, you know, their their production resulted in a wine looking like this. And I thought, God, that's cool. Every time, like 2018 gave us wine like that. And I, I find this is one of the weird things. You can look at someone else's wine and go, oh, I worship that wine. And then when it comes in your desk, you go, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and uh, it, it tests you in so many different ways. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I like courage. I like seeing people with um, philosophy um, and doing some odd things. Like yesterday, I was talking to Duncan Forsyth at Mount Ed, and he had this 2016 Chenin Blanc that he's happily and deliberately oxidizing, and it's delicious. And we've got a 2010 um, uh, wine that sat in barrels, a whole bunch pressed Pinot, similarly um, materized and sherry-like and really fantastic, cool things like that. I don't I don't like just change for change's sake. I, I, as I say, I'm narrative-drawn and like uh, philosophical reasons for doing things. So I've got my own set of favorite winemakers around here, yeah, I think, are just doing such cool things. Yeah. Really, really incredible talent around here. Yes. Um, a deep, deep sort of sensitivity to land and place and, and their part in it and um, – yeah, quite humbling actually. Mm. I say that without un, like false reverence. I just think some of the things that are being done down here exist beyond um, simple commercial reality and into a realm of something that is uh, very noble and, and um, based around how you look at this place existing after you've gone and what right. sort of legacy you live. And yeah. I think leave. Yeah. And I think that's that's kind of cool. Yeah, it is cool. Yeah, a lot of integrity and a lot of integrity to it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they might be total charlatans and the rest of it. <laughs> but in terms of what they do with wine, it's it's pretty amazing, yeah. And uh, we finish on the um, question, if you could have any glass of wine with anyone, mm. anywhere, um, who and where and what would that be? Yeah, so my real love um, is cricket. So I would choose... Um, can I choose more than one? Yes, you can. Yeah, cool. Yes. So I would fill a room, and I would fill. I would have John Arlett there because he's a doyen of cricket commentary, and he loved wine and a rich character. But I would also like I'd like Jasper Morris there because um, he he could sort of guide us through, and I, I wouldn't expect anything like I just want him to bring some pretty cool, interesting wines, and he'd be able to explain. A lot about them, and he loves cricket too. He knows who Warren Bardsley is. I know that because I've talked to him about Warren Bardsley, who's um, a left-handed opener for Australia, captain once. Um, uh, Horseshoe Collins was injured in 1926. Bardsley took over. There was one person who knew that at the uh, Pino celebration. <laughs> that was um, Jasper Morris. Thought, Far out, right. Jasper. That's cool that you actually know. I'm a geek, right? And yeah, yeah. so I wouldn't mind that. And so sorry. And for listeners, Jasper, who's Jasper? Oh Morris yeah. And? So he's a um, he's a uh, British wine scribe right. and an uh, and authority on Burgundy. And I don't say that to be a, an ass. If he brought some light, fresh Burgundy, cool. But he would be able to. Keep the story rollicking along because he's got a, he's got a great sense of humor and a good understand a deep understanding of that area. Yes. So he'd lend heaps of, and then I I think beefy both them because he'd drink and keep things going. Yeah. He'd both them. The English cricketer. Yep. Yeah. And then um, one time Scumthorpe football player. Yeah, too, true. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he'd, he'd probably he'd probably talk about the cricket more than the football. You're a football man. <laughs> yes. You're yeah. more football. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a world into cricket. You should. 
yeah. maybe explore a little. Yeah, so that, that, that'd be my three. I, I think, yeah, if no. I was yeah. greedy, I'd have Hugh Laurie playing the piano um, and the, the British um, actor. I reckon yeah. he's cool. So I've got a bunch of British guys. I don't know what that says about me. Right. Um, but, but that's for, okay. But you'd be drinking a bit of French wine and... Yeah, not enough. No, no, I'm anything but a, a wine snob, a beer snob, maybe. No, but so um, yeah. But I think in that company, I could, and I would leave the wine up to them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I, I love they white. Bring the wine and the stories. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I, I'm not going to be a. And would, I, and I would you um, would you do that here, or would you go to Lords or something and sit in the middle oh, of the uh, cool. sit in the middle of the wicket? Oh, look, <laughs> yeah, because that's a great thing about Test cricket. It, it, it happens whilst. You're having this conversation, so yes, yes. the the it's one of the slow moving, yeah, uh, transient thing, uh, transitory things that That's right. uh, uh, obliquely you uh, observe the action and enjoy it. God, I love Test cricket. Yeah, no, it's yeah. great, especially with those English commentators. You know, it's almost like you're at a picnic party and it's something that's happening in the background. And yeah. Occasionally, you turn your attention to it. <laughs> yeah, I know, and and so many people don't understand the the beauty of Test cricket. It's yeah. one of those things that you can actually stop and take time out to enjoy someone's mm. company and do all that sort of jazz. Mm. Have we actually talked about wine today? Yeah. Have we done enough? <laughs> I, I don't think I've done any. This has been no credit to Gibson Valley. <laughs> I, good old Gibson Valley. What a great place. But I, I've done no, no specifics about what we're doing, but hopefully um, – yeah. No, that's been great. No, I've really enjoyed that. Thanks again, Yeah, Christopher. Yeah. It's been very good. Come yeah. again for part nine. Yeah, we'll, we'll, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be back for the second innings. B-Dog, it's my pleasure, mate. Thank you, Boris. Okay, and, uh, Yeah, catch you later. We've been speaking with Christopher Keyes, head winemaker at Gibston Valley Winery in the central Otago of New Zealand. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about Gibston, uh, you can go to gibstonvalley.com, G-I-B-B-S-T-O-N valley.com. Um, and be sure to also check out some of the other New Zealand wine podcasts as we were talking with other winemakers and people involved in the wine industry in New Zealand. And you can check us out on Instagram as well. Just look up NZ Wine Podcast. We also have some great podcasts on other topics for you to listen to at podcast.nz and this episode was brought to you by bizzebu.com if you've got a great business idea then let's get it started b-i-z-e-b-u.com thanks for listening in we appreciate your company hey mai bye for now <laughs>